Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the row of chairs in front of you. If you can grab a Bible, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Thank you, Elwood, for, uh, I guess, prepping us for this in the remembrance service. Appreciate it. (laughs) That's the best kind. So Moses, the writer of Genesis, has carefully constructed the story of Abraham's life up to this point into what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary technique that the biblical writers often used uh, to help the reader see not only the progression of the story, but also the parallels within the story. This isn't the first time that we've encountered a chiasm in Genesis. You may remember we saw chiasms within the, uh, the, the flood story, as well as the story of the Tower of Babel. What often happens in chiasms, chiasms sorry, tongue twister, is that you have these, these two halves of parallels with a central focus that kind of brings it all together. So it's like a sandwich with two pieces of bread, and then you've got the, the sauces and the toppings, and then you've got the, the meat in the middle, or whatever your meat of choice would be. If you're more of a visual learner, I've included it in the back of your bulletin there. So you can see uh, the genealogy of Terah in Genesis 11, verses 27 to 32. And then you've got its parallel with the genealogy of Nahor. And that's in Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24. And so you see within that section, you know, we've got all these different parallels uh, we've got the command to go and the start of Abraham's spiritual journey in Genesis 12, verse, verses 1 to 9. And we've got its parallel in this passage we're going to be looking at this morning. The command to go and the climax of Abraham's spiritual journey. Uh, then you've got Sarai in a foreign palace. And peace and success that follow. And, and Abraham and Lot, they part in Genesis 12, verse 10 to 13, verse 18. And then in Genesis 20, verse 1 to 21, verse 34, we've got Sarai in a foreign palace. And we see peace and success follow. And then we see Abraham and Ishmael part. Then Abraham, uh, he comes to the rescue of Sodom and Lot. Remember with the, the, uh, the violent kings there in, in Genesis 14. And then we've got its parallel in uh, Abraham coming to the rescue of Sodom and Lot again in uh, Genesis 18 to 19 there as he intercedes on behalf of, of Sodom. And then we've got God's covenant with Abram and the annunciation of Ishmael in Genesis 15 to uh, 16. And then its parallel is God's covenant with Abraham and the annunciation of Isaac in Genesis 17, verse 9, to Genesis 18, verse 15. And then right in the middle there, kind of the the meat kind of brings it all together as God changes Abram's name to Abraham. That's a a pivotal moment in this part of of Abraham's life. And so you can see 
all these different parallels within this story. So just as in Genesis chapter 12, where the Lord commanded Abraham to go, so also here in Genesis 22, the Lord commands Abraham to go. Uh, But this time, the stakes are a little bit higher. You see, the Lord is going to ask Abraham to do something more difficult, more agonizing than anything that he's asked him to do up until this point. And even though it might seem as though the Lord is going back on his covenant promise, Abraham will need to rely on the Lord like never before. And so it's going to be the climax of Abraham's spiritual journey. What is he going to do? How is, he going to, how is the situation going to be resolved? And so if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to follow along with me as I read for us, beginning in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess 
the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruamah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehesh, and Meekah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So look back there at verse 1. After these things, what things? These would be the events of Genesis chapter 21, the birth of Isaac, the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael, and Abraham's treaty with Abimelech. After these things, God tested Abraham. How many of us like tests? I'm guessing that not many of us enjoy the occasional tests. Now, when I was in Bible college, I never looked forward to exams. Uh, I could write a research paper, no problem. But when I was presented with questions that required a yes or no answer, all of a sudden I would get nervous and I would start to overthink things that I had known all my life. But what I didn't realize is that these tests were actually helping me to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It affirmed what I knew and maybe showed me what it was that I still needed to grow in. Another example of a test is that uh, this week, Helena and the boys, they had eye exams. I wasn't even the one who was having my eyes checked and I was nervous. You know, what if they don't get the correct letters in, in the line or you, know, you got you to gotta look at the hot air balloon, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, as it was, their eyes were, were actually really good. But we wouldn't have known that had it not been for this test. You know, when, when we hear the word test, I'm guessing we, we don't think of something that is intended for our good, even though that's the point of a test. It's something that is supposed to help us in the future. And here, you know, when we read that God tested Abraham, we're a little surprised, a little taken aback. Why would God do that? But then this isn't the only time that God would test one of his people. In, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 25, the Israelites, they were grumbling against Moses saying, you know, what shall we drink? We're going to die out here. And it says that Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There it says the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them. 
And then in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord told Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses said to the people, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And there's several more examples as well. But but over and over again, we see in Scripture God testing his people, not, not because he's cruel, not to try and trip us up, but to show what we are really like, to reveal what is in our hearts. God ultimately tests his people for our good and for his glory. We, we don't tend to think about tests in this way. But what tests do is they give us the opportunity to prove ourselves. And what, what is it that I truly believe? You know, when, when life is difficult, when, when I'm up against something that I don't know how I'm going to get through, will I continue to trust in the Lord or will I go my own way and do my own thing? Well, here God is testing Abraham to see if he will follow God's instruction or not. And how perplexing a test this must have been for Abraham. Look at verse 2. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Imagine being Abraham hearing this from the Lord. How could God ask Abraham to kill his son? Right, after all, this is the promised son that we've been waiting for for quite some time, that, that Abraham and, and Sarah had been waiting for for quite some time. He even if you consider since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we've been waiting for the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Since Genesis 5, verse 29, we've been waiting for the one who would bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. But now, now God was requesting that Abraham kill this promised son. The one who potentially would now bring us this relief. No, well, wasn't it God who created mankind in his own image? Wasn't it God who instructed Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed? Wasn't it God who would later command Israel at Sinai, you shall not murder? And wasn't it God who would warn Israel in Canaan not to imitate the Canaanites who burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods? Right? How could God contradict his own law by asking Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering? This wasn't the way of God. This, this was the way of Egypt, who would later command all the Hebrew children, all the Hebrew boys, to be killed. But for Abraham, God's request was even more contradictory. When God first called 
Abraham to leave his country and his kindred and his father's house. Abraham had to leave the past behind and he had to to move forward with God's promise to make of him a great nation, right? And after 25 years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah, they finally received Isaac, this son of promise. And, And through Isaac, right, Abraham would become a great nation. Through Isaac, Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Everything was kind of falling into place now. So that without Isaac, right, none of this could come true. Isaac was the embodiment of all God's promises to Abraham. This is more than simply a father being asked to, to offer his son, as unbearable as, unbearable as that is. By offering Isaac on the altar as a burnt offering, Abraham's future, his, his hopes and dreams would likewise go up in smoke. God was aware of the excruciating test he put before Abraham. Notice notice the buildup of phrases in verse 2, right? Take your son. Not only your son, your only son. Not only your own, the, the, the son whom you love, right? You can see that it's, it's building, right? Several times throughout this story, the word son is used. Right? Moses wants to make it clear that we are talking here about Abraham's flesh and blood. There's no question. Because Abraham sent Ishmael away, Isaac is now Abraham's only son. And now Abraham wants to take his only son and offer him as a burnt offering, right? Laughter, right? Isaac's name means laughter. Laughter would soon turn to mourning. Look at verse three. How would Abraham respond? (laughs) Well, we see how Abraham responds. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took his two of his young men with him and his son Isaac And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You know, back in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham pleaded with the Lord on behalf of the the wicked city of Sodom. Here, Abraham doesn't say a word. Abraham simply obeys. He gets everything ready. And for three days, they traveled, right? Three days, that's a long time to dwell on the impending execution that is to come. You see, we know from the beginning of this story that this is a test from God. We know from the beginning of this story that God will not let Abraham kill his only son. But Abraham doesn't know that. And so as they walked... We wonder, right? Do you think Abraham ever had thoughts of turning back? Do you think he ever looked over at Isaac and wept for what was coming? Do you think he ever questioned what God was doing? On the third day, they see the place from far away and Abraham says to his young men in verse five, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again 
to you. Notice the wording. I and the boy will come again to you. We will come again to you. And so we wonder, right, what is Abraham's thought process here? Is he lying to his servants in order to keep them and, and Isaac in the dark about what this whole trip was, was really about? Is he kidding himself? Does Abraham really think that he will return with Isaac alive? <laughs> Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get, a, we get a glimpse into what Abraham is thinking in this moment. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham figured that somehow, some way, God was going to bring his son back to life. Now, what's amazing about this is that Abraham believes that God is able to raise his son from the dead over a thousand years before Elijah would raise the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. And almost another thousand years before Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. And before Jesus himself would be raised from the dead. You see, Abraham had what one commentator called a kind of resurrection faith. Where he believed that God who, who gave life when there was no life could also bring back life. From the dead. Such faith Abraham had to believe that God was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. Yeah, but it isn't long. Isaac's smart, you know. He's, this isn't his first, his first burnt offering. It isn't long before Isaac notices that something significant is missing. What's missing? Verse 7, Isaac says to Abraham, My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What would Abraham say? Would he tell Isaac the awful truth that they had not brought a lamb for the offering because he was, in fact, the lamb? Abraham simply responds in verse 8, God will provide. 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And that seems to be sufficient. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And so we wonder at this point, we all, will, will Abraham actually go through with this? Right? Does he trust God so much that he will offer not only his son, but also his future, offer everything on this altar? Everything comes to a climax in verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And then suddenly the angel of the Lord urgently calls down from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God. Isn't it interesting that this text doesn't seem to make much of Isaac, who was seconds away from losing his life? Certainly, Isaac is a, he's a type of, of Christ. Isaac's trust here foreshadows the greater trust of Jesus, who, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Right, we, we see a lot of parallels between Isaac and, and Christ, just as Isaac was Abraham's only son whom he loved. So also God calls Jesus my beloved son. Just as Isaac carried the wood for the offering up a mountain, so also Jesus carried his cross up a mountain. Isaac would be uh, metaphorically raised from the dead on the third day, while Jesus was physically raised from the dead on the third day, right? We, we see all these kinds of parallels. There are, there are definite allusions in this story to Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross. But what this story is really about is faith. It's about faith. You see, Abraham, he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know, once again, that this was a test. He simply trusted and obeyed. He didn't just say God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. He actually believed it to the point where he was actually going to Fulfill that obligation. This is a story of Abraham's faith in action. This is the, the point that James, the half-brother of Jesus, will make later in his letter. Turn over to James chapter 2.
In James chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now there are those who, who try to say that James here is contradicting the apostle Paul who said that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's, that's in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. But they're, they're actually talking about two different things. See, James is saying that faith, which truly justifies, is going to show itself in works. You see, if Abraham had heard the word of the Lord and not done what God had asked him to do, Right, so if if he had had simply said, "No, no, I, I don't have to, I don't have to go through the the whole thing, the whole rigmarole," I, I trust that that you are are the Lord, you know. Like, no, you, you have to do this thing. No, 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 don't, I I trust you, right? I I'm all in. God, if if he had if he had heard the word of the Lord and not done what God had asked him to do, it would have revealed that he didn't truly trust. God. The the reason God can say, now I know that you fear God, is because God has seen Abraham's faith in action. Abraham has demonstrated that he is ready to obey whatever God asks of him. That he's, he's willing to go wherever God would have him go. He's ready to say what God would have him say. He's ready to do what God would have him do. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so we see Because the ram dies, Isaac can live. And because Isaac lives, the promise of God to make of Abraham a great nation, that can be fulfilled. Verse 14 says that Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. That is, the Lord will provide, Moses adds, that even in his day, Israel was still using the popular saying, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided And so it is that the God who tests is also the God who provides. The God who tests is also the God who provides. When God tests you, he will provide for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is clear. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that 
you may be able to endure it. The God who tests is the God who provides. Look at verse 13. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time, saying, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is now the last time that the Lord speaks to Abraham. And notice how the Lord reaffirms the promise he made to Abraham at at the beginning, back in, in Genesis chapter 12, but with a few slight adjustments, right? The Lord had promised to make Abraham's offspring as as numerous as the stars of the heaven. But here he promises to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The Lord had promised to, to give the land of the Canaanites to Abraham's offspring. But here he promises that Abraham's offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. The Lord had promised that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. But here he promises that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he's just, he's accentuating the promise that he originally made to Abraham. And notice how the Lord swears all of this by himself. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 14, the writer of Hebrews draws on this passage saying, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. There is none greater or higher than God upon which to swear. God God is the greatest. God is the highest upon which to swear. As, uh, As one commentator put it, the unchanging nature of his promise is tied to the unchanging nature of his person. In other words, God isn't going to ask us to do something that is contrary to who he is. God might ask us to do something that doesn't make sense to us, but he will also give us the means to do it. God doesn't just say, go do this and good luck. No, God says, go do this and I will be with you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20. The God who tests is the God who provides. Do you know what God provides for you and for me? He provides himself. He provides himself. And there is nothing more sure that we can grab hold of during our time of testing than God. Now, as the Israelites would have heard this story, they they would have been reminded of the Passover. The first Passover feast was celebrated when they were slaves in in Egypt. Uh, Moses prescribed that the Israelites were to take a lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. They shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, the two doorposts 
and the, the lentil of the houses in which they would eat of it. Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 to 7. Right? And, and that night, what happened? The, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but he passed over the houses whose doorposts were covered with blood. And so we see that a lamb died so that the firstborn in Israel could live. Right? The, the offerings at the tabernacle and then later the temple, they carried a similar message, right? God instructed Israel to offer a burnt offering. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Read about that in Numbers chapter 23, verse, verses 3 to 4. Where we see that a lamb died so that Israel could live. So you're seeing where this is going. In the New Testament, we read a familiar passage of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. So just like Isaac, God offers his only son. But unlike Abraham, who was prevented by God from making this sacrifice, God does give his only son in order to save his people. God provided a sacrificial lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, he introduced Jesus in John 1 verse 29 as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself proclaimed that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And so we see that Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, died so that we could live. Our redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. So, so uh, maybe you are experiencing a test right now that is not overly pleasant. Uh, maybe maybe you, you know the right thing to do, uh, but maybe the world and the flesh and the devil are trying desperately to convince you that God just wants you to be happy or, or that uh, God isn't someone to be trusted. But, but if there is one thing we can take away from this passage, it's that the God of promise is with the God who tests is the God who ultimately provides for us. And so the question that we're, we're kind of left with is, will we trust and obey him? Will we trust and obey him? There, we, we have many examples in scripture of, indiv of individuals who chose to, to trust and obey God. Right, uh, Joseph chose to trust and obey when he didn't give in to the, the wiles of Potiphar's wife. Esther chose to trust and obey when she risked her life to save her people. Daniel chose to trust and obey when he didn't eat the king's food and when he didn't cease praying to the one true God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they chose to trust and obey when they didn't bow down to the gold, golden image and faced the fiery furnace. And in all these, the God of promise was with them. You know, we, we may wonder, can, can I really trust God to provide for my redemption? Right? And if God 
if God has provided for my redemption, if, if he is able to provide for my redemption, then why do I see so little evidence of it in my life or in the world? We, we may wonder, we may have questions about such things. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul responds to these kinds of questions. In Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The God who stopped Abraham from offering his only son is graciously the God who loved us so much that he offered up his one and only son whom he loved for us. Right, we, we know that there's, there's nothing that will be able to, to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter how difficult our circumstances, no matter how hard the test might be, we can trust the Lord to provide. So again, the question that we're left with is, will we trust and will we obey? I pray that we would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your gift of faith through which we are saved. Thank you for your precious promises that are yes and amen in Christ. Uh, we ask that those here who are experiencing a, a, a moment of testing would neither waver nor wander by your grace. And we pray, pray for those who, who have wandered from the truth, that you would bring them back and reaffirm your great love for them. 
God, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us the grace to trust and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.